Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, there are several dozen late 19th century Carpenter Gothic churches still standing in the state. For historians particularly, it is one thing to be able to look at a photograph and talk about it. It is another to be able to see that building and to talk about it and to give a kind of sense of what it's like by going in there and getting the feel of it. We'll discuss the struggle to equalize pay for black and white teachers in Florida. After considerable foot dragging, by the end of the 1940s, substantial progress had been made toward equalizing pay for black and white teachers. And we'll ride along with the 1911 Golf to Great Lakes as the Crow Flies automobile adventure. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Carpenter Gothic-style churches are typically characterized by wooden, board, and batten siding, pointed stained glass windows, pointed roofs, and spires with bell towers. More than 60 Carpenter Gothic churches were built in North and Central Florida in the second half of the 19th century. Jack Lane is Professor Emeritus of History at Rollins College and has written about Carpenter Gothic churches. If you see these churches, then you understand that they were built by a community that just had very little money. As it turned out, there was a kind of beauty in its kind of primitiveness. There are several dozen Carpenter Gothic churches still standing in the state, including Union Congregational Church in Tavares, St. James Episcopal Church in Lake City, St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Palatka, St. Mary's Episcopal Church in Green Cove Springs, St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Merritt Island, All Saints Episcopal Church in Enterprise, and LaGrange Community Church in Titusville. When you walk into the churches on the inside, they almost look crude because all the beams were exposed. And part of that had to do with not wanting to spend any more money than they had to on these churches. But the other, I think, is that these churches allowed for, rather than having too much ornamentation, allowed for a concentration of the service and the uh, congregation on a particular thing, rather than having a really ornate cathedral where everybody's looking around and paying attention to the architecture. The principal designer of Carpenter Gothic churches in Florida was 19th century architect Richard Upjohn. He was part of the Gothic revival movement in America, first building small stone churches. Jack Lane. He came under the influence of what was known as the Oxford Movement in the late 19th century that began in England 
And the Oxford movement was a kind of restoration of the Gothic style of architecture because they argued that that was by far and away the most amenable to the whole uh, concept of Christian theology. And so if there was a kind of movement which is called ecclesiology in which they tried to match the church architecture with church liturgy and theology. That movement resulted in a large number of small stone churches being created in England at the time in the Gothic style. Uh, the Romanesque had been the most popular in those small churches before this. And then there's some travel of Episcopals in this church over to England. They came back with the knowledge of what was going on there. And so Upjohn, as an architect, was uh, very much influenced by it, and he built larger churches in the Gothic style. So there, Upjohn was part of a Gothic revival in churches in this country. Richard Upjohn turned from designing stone churches to wooden churches, which worked much better for pioneers in the remote wilderness of Florida. They were very, very simple to build so that carpenters, all the carpenter needed was the design that he had presented to them and they could build it. And so the result was that these little churches started popping up in New England and later, as we'll see, down into Florida as well. Bishop John Freeman Young of the Florida Episcopalian Diocese was responsible for most of the carpenter Gothic churches that were built in the state. Jack Lane. He had traveled to England. He had become um, a kind of student of this ecclesiology of the Oxford movement and was absolutely convinced that these were the kinds of churches that should be built by these communities when they were going to build them. And he traveled throughout the state, making certain in, in his mind that these congregations understood that these kind of churches were available to them if they wanted to build a church. Polly Schuster Polk is historian for St. Gabriel's Episcopal Church, built in Titusville in 1887. John Freeman Young, who was the bishop at the time, it was mostly his mission. He was the bishop of Florida, and he was determined to grow us. And I think what I didn't realize until I started doing a lot of research was he was getting pressure from the National Episcopal Church, and he was trying to prove that he really was working, that he just wasn't, you know, enjoying the, the sunshine and fishing in Florida. And so he wrote, they wrote journals. And one of the journals I ran across was from one of his missionaries that he sent down here. And the bishop was trying so hard to prove this that he submitted this priest's journal to the national church. And in this journal, the priest talks about how he started up in Jacksonville. He had to come on the boat down to Enterprise. And then he had to wait. And then he got on another boat, which was called, I believe, the Little Addy, which he makes a comment that it was not designed for transporting people and he had to sleep outside. It dropped him off at Salt Lake. From there, he walked carrying a valise of prayer books, and he's just kind of walking around being a little evangelist. And so he crossed through what back then would have been very treacherous territory. I mean, it's all swamp and muck and animals. I mean, he said he saw a tiger, but we're pretty sure it was a panther. But anyway, he walked all the way from Salt Lake to LaGrange, where he met up with some of the Carlisle family and uh, made comments about them. They asked him to come back. From there, he walked into Titusville the same day, got here about sunset, because his mission from Bishop Young was to meet with Colonel Titus, because he knew that Colonel Titus was an Episcopalian and have a service. 
It sounded like it didn't go that well because Titus did not ask him to do a service. His name was Reverend McClure. He spent the night and then the next morning he walked back out to LaGrange and had the first Episcopal service there. He held a morning prayer service at 11 a.m. That was April 20th, 1869. And then from there he had more things he had to do. He was supposed to go out and see Douglas Dummett and that again he had to navigate the Indian River and then from there after Dummett he had to go up to New Smyrna. So I don't think people really realize what a true frontier that this place really was. I mean everything was horseback and boats and when John Freeman Young came back with another priest back in I think 1871 and it wasn't any better he had to come the same way. So these people were determined to spread the word and to get their churches planted. When you think of Florida architecture, the first styles that come to mind are probably cracker architecture, Art Deco or Mediterranean Revival, but several dozen Carpenter Gothic style churches still stand in the state as a quaint reminder of late 19th century Florida history. For historians particularly, it is one thing to be able to look at a photograph and talk about it. It is another to be able to see that building and to talk about it and to give a kind of sense of what it's like by going in there and getting the feel of it. We spoke with Jack C. Lane, Professor Emeritus of History at Rollins College, and Polly Schuster Polk at St. Gabriel's Episcopal Church in Titusville. And the Savior above through his This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, we're all familiar with the Brown v. Board of Ed decision that many people see as the beginning of the modern civil rights movement. Did Florida play a role in that decision? It did. The importance of the 1954 U.S. Supreme Court decision in Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas, cannot be overestimated. The court's determination that separate is inherently unequal provided legal validation to the reality of black lives in the United States. But Southern political leaders found a variety of ways to delay desegregation while assuring the courts and the Justice Department that they were making progress. In the immediate aftermath of the ruling, white Southerners encouraged massive resistance to the Brown decision, and both Florida senators 
Spessard Holland and George Smathers signed the Southern Manifesto. Six of the eight congressmen also signed. The manifesto accused the Supreme Court of clear abuse of power and promised to, quote, use all lawful means to bring about a reversal of this decision, which is contrary to the Constitution, and to prevent the use of force in its implementation. In a 2003 article published in the Florida Historical Quarterly, Caroline Emmons, a professor at Hamden Sydney College in Virginia, argues that the fight to equalize teachers' salaries in Florida in the 1930s and 1940s was an important, unrecognized battle in the larger war for school desegregation. Emmons' interpretation of Florida as a critical actor in the long civil rights movement fits well with the assertion made by historians Irvin D.S. Winsboro and Abel Bartley that Florida is not an exception to the Deep South, that its racial history places the state among the leaders in the use of violence to uphold Jim Crow segregation laws. In a 2014 article on school desegregation, Winsboro and Bartley challenged the work of mid-20th century political scientist V.O. Key, whose book Southern Politics and State and Nation laid the foundation for subsequent research on the political history of the region for the remainder of the century. Key depicted Florida as an exception with Dixie scarcely a part of the South. In fact, a world of its own whose history emitted a faint tropical rebel yell. In their work on school desegregation, all three scholars demonstrate Florida's commitment to the racial status quo of the post-Reconstruction South and the state's central role in the region's resistance to desegregation. They differ in their focus. Emmons concentrates her research on the fight for pay equalization. Winsboro and Bartley incorporate pay equalization into a larger study on desegregation that spans the era from 1865 to the 1970s. Emmons' thesis is clear. Before the Brown fight was engaged or even fully conceived, efforts to equalize black and white teacher salaries in the South laid the groundwork for a direct attack on school desegregation. Florida was at the center of the pay equity battle. The court battles to equalize pay with that of white teachers established precedents for overturning the Plessy v. Ferguson doctrine of separate but equal. And although they did not always result in immediate victory, the battles empowered and politicized an important segment of the African-American population, namely female teachers. Connie, how did African-American teachers in Florida fight unequal pay, and what was the outcome? In 1930, 79,795 black children attended school in Florida, approximately a third of the number of white children enrolled in public schools at a time when blacks comprised 46% of the state's population. In 1924, Clara G. Stillman identified one of the causes of low school attendance in an article published in The Crisis, the monthly publication of the NAACP. Most Floridians, she noted, lived in rural areas where there were few schools for black children. And even where schools existed, they frequently operated only three or four months of the year because children were in the fields harvesting fruits and vegetables for distant markets. A follow-up story demonstrated another issue, the disparity in pay. 
white male teachers averaged $119.80 a month. Black male teachers received $61.20 a month. For white women, the average was $81 a month and $43.20 for black women. By the early 1930s, Emmons tells us the NAACP had turned its attention to the education of black children in the South after a report by New York attorney Nathan Margold predicted that a constitutionally-based attack to equalize facilities and resources would eventually force the South to abandon segregation. The strategy for pursuing the equalization of facilities and resources, which characterized the initial cases pursued by the NAACP, rested on the ways in which state laws were carried out locally. As Emmons explained, state legislatures wrote laws that incorporated language that would be held constitutionally correct, even if the intent was discrimination. The laws were carried out in cities and counties, however, where local authorities acted according to intent and discriminated in ways that opened them to federal lawsuits. The problem for the NAACP was one of time and resources to pursue multiple local cases through the federal court system. Margol argued that the NAACP should focus on three easily proved facts. One, state laws required separate schools, two, expenditures were unequal, and three, state remedies were in practice unavailable. Using Margold's tactics, in 1936, the NAACP brought a suit against Montgomery County, Maryland, for pay discrimination. The county capitulated and voluntarily agreed to equalize salaries. In August 1937, Harry T. Moore, a Brevard County school teacher and president of the county chapter of the NAACP, informed the national organization that he had hired Jacksonville attorney Samuel D. McGill to initiate a lawsuit challenging the inequities of teacher pay. John Gilbert, principal of the Cocoa Junior High School, would be the plaintiff. Gilbert's suit was followed by similar filings in Escambia County, Duval County, and Marion County. Plaintiffs were fired, retired, and otherwise penalized for their actions. Teachers, acting through the Black Florida State Teachers Association, debated the legal costs associated with the lawsuits and complained about the length of the procedure. They also worked to mitigate the financial burdens experienced by the now out-of-work plaintiffs. What was the eventual outcome of these lawsuits? Counties found creative ways to stall and end the lawsuits. School boards argued that salaries were determined by school trustees, not school boards. Dade County claimed that the salaries were dependent on economic needs. Whites lived in more prosperous communities and needed higher pay. Others claimed that white teachers were better qualified. Finally, school boards argued that black teachers were among the highest paid in their communities. They made promises to raise the pay of black teachers and instituted schemes to base pay on the outcome of examinations that would be administered to all teachers. NAACP attorney Thurgood Marshall warned that counties would not follow through with their promises unless compelled to do so by the courts, and he proved right in his assessment of the situation. 
After considerable foot dragging, by the end of the 1940s, substantial progress had been made toward equalizing pay for black and white teachers. Indeed, Emmons notes the president of the state's Progressive Voters League claimed in 1948 that we are happy in Florida to be enjoying salaries equal, if not the highest, of any colored teachers in the South. In 1947, in an effort to forestall integration, the Florida legislature instituted the Minimum Foundation Program to equalize salaries and facilities. As the 1950s dawned, Emmons argues that the fight for equalization shifted the NAACP strategy to one of an attack on the separate but equal doctrine and opened the door to Brown v. Board. The fight for teachers' pay, she claimed, showed blacks in the South that Jim Crow was not invincible and that the courts, especially federal courts, offered avenues for successful challenge. These early confrontations with Jim Crow also galvanized the explosion of civil rights protests in the 1950s. As Emmons concludes, although black teachers did not achieve all that they sought, they learned important lessons about how to challenge the system, how to find help from supporters elsewhere in the nation, and how to organize themselves to change the status quo. An important history to remember. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know change gonna come. Oh, yes it This is Florida Frontiers. Today, interstate highways make travel across the country relatively simple. As Florida Frontiers contributor Sebastian Garcia reports, in 1911, that wasn't the case. Dr. Martin T. Olaf is a professor of history at Troy University Dothan campus and director of the Wiregrass Archives in Troy, Alabama. He has written and published books and journal articles on the Good Roads Movement and pathfinding trips. I spoke with him about his journal article in the winter-slash-spring 2021 issue of the Florida Historical Quarterly titled Pathfinders, Progressives, and Boosters, the 1911 Gulf to Great Lakes as the Crow Flies Automobile Adventure. This automobile adventure featured Dr. S.R. Mallory Kennedy, a physician, well-known automobilist, and well-liked Pensacola booster, Frank L. Mays, a prominent Pensacola journal editor who wrote and published about the adventure as it played out, and A.M. Avery Jr. and F.C. Brent Jr., two prominent businessmen in Pensacola. As Dr. Olaf explained, this was much more significant than going on a risky road trip. This was to attract tourists from the Midwest and the North to Pensacola and the broader Gulf region. This was, like I said in the article title, it was an adventure. And the point was to drive on the absolutely worst roads imaginable, things you would not walk on, they drove on from Pensacola to Chicago. And the overriding idea here was what you might think of as open a route from Chicago, where all the tourists were, to Pensacola, where the commercial association wanted these tourists to come and spend their money. This adventure was multifaceted, as seen in the article's title. It was an amalgam of who these four men were, 
the attitudes and conditions of the era, and their overall goals and expectations that were set for this trip. From Pathfinders to Progressives to the fun nickname as the crow flies and Boosters, Dr. Olaf explained it all. When we say Pathfinding trip, there was an era from about 1905 through, oh, it kept going, but after about 1915, it really kind of stopped, of quote-unquote Pathfinders. And these guys were all over the place. Cars became reliable. And so instead of testing the reliability of cars, they were promoting good roads and the creation of roadways, long distance roadways, highways, we would call them, as competition to long distance train travel. That was to them the future. My argument is in my book and somewhat in this article is that these progressives that were involved in the Good Roads movement not only wanted to hem in the working class or absorb the working class, but also wanted to offer alternatives to things that were controlled by either of these other groups. And railroads was a big one. Highways and cars not railroads. As the crow flies is just an advertising gimmick, the idea that there wouldn't be a big zig or a big zag, but that you would go basically from the north to the south with just a little bit of a zigzag. So, of course, Pensacola to Chicago was point A and point B for the trip, but Chicago to Pensacola was what they were trying to advertise. If you're not familiar with boosterism, there are people who, at least in their public personas, are completely driven by the idea of pushing forward the good points of a thing in which they're either financially or emotionally invested. So all of these people that were associated with this Pensacola to Chicago pathfinding trip were boosters. And they were kind of on the nuts end of Booster, super fandom. They were willing to put their physical bodies where their mouths were, so to speak. This was dangerous. All these multifaceted angles pointed at one main objective, getting into the American Automobile Association, or the AAA for short, Blue Book. Dr. Olive succinctly explained why such an objective was significant. The AAA Blue Book was considered to be the Bible of long-distance travel. As Dr. Olaf mentioned before, the four men drove on roads we would not even walk on and accomplished the 1,149-mile Pensacola to Chicago pathfinding trip on September 12, 1911, in an impressive total runtime of 76 hours across nine days with, as Dr. Kennedy bragged, quote, Pensacola air in the tires, end quote. The immediate effects of this pathfinding trip on Pensacola's tourism sector was not apparent. However, getting into the AAA Blue Book was achieved in the next year's edition. And, as Dr. Olaf described, that could have facilitated an influx of tourists to Pensacola. The one thing that did happen that could have added to the influx in a positive way was that the AAA Blue Book accepted the route description provided by Kennedy and Frank Mays as the route from Birmingham through Andalusia down to Pensacola. The broader legacy of this trip would far outlive the four men that took on this automobile adventure. As Dr. Olaf wrote in the final sentence of his journal article, quote, The result was neither an all-weather road, nor a road as straight as the crow flies, but the scouts, the four men, laid the foundation for an automotive alternative to riding the Louisville and Nashville Railroad for northerner tourists who, someday, would vacation on the Gulf. End quote. 
For Florida Frontiers, I am Sebastian Garcia, undergraduate history student and history podcast producer for the Department of History at the University of Central Florida. If you would like to hear the full podcast conversation I had with Dr. Olaf about this amazing pathfinding automobile adventure, head over to stars.library.ucf.edu slash FHQ dash podcast slash 44 slash or follow my Twitter at Seb underscore Garcia underscore underscore and click the link in my bio. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and this week, Sebastian Garcia. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.